Guys, could we stand together? Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, the purchase of God. Born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Mm. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed. Watching and waiting, looking above. Watching and waiting, looking above. Filled with His goodness. Filled with His good. Lost in His love. Lost in His love. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day Father, we just love you tonight. God, as we behold tonight who you are, the salvation that you have made, the severity of your judgment, God, I pray that you would restore in each of our hearts the fear of the Lord to a greater degree. God, I pray that we would embrace the kindness and the salvation that you have offered us in a greater way. I pray that we would recognize the value of what we have and protect it above anything else that happens. Everything else really isn't going to matter in the end if we make it to heaven. So God, please help us. Lord, as John Wesley said, there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. So open our hearts tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it is just wonderful to have you here tonight. Um, let me just tell you a little about the night. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probably talk for about 50 minutes straight. And we will have a little time at the end of this first session... Uh, for questions right away from, from what I had shared so far. And then 
We'll take a five-minute break. Everybody can, whatever you need to do, use the bathroom, whatever. And then we will come back for the second, probably 40 minutes. And then we will open it up for more questions, comments. Um, But there is a ton of material here tonight. And what I don't want you to do is get lost in the details or... um, feel like you're going to miss something if you don't write it down. So what, what we've got a couple things for you. One, you will be able to just go onto our website and download these notes. They're, they're already there, in fact. Um, but if you want us to send the notes to you by email, I'm going to send this around. And that way it just comes right to you. And because uh, that's what this is all about. Um, some of the stuff that I can't do... so. Can just somebody that's, Ron, can you make sure that as that goes to the back that somehow it makes its way back up? There's a lot of stuff that I can't share tonight. It's just too much material. So there are actually in, uh, when you get the notes, there are eight appendixes to the stuff I'm saying here tonight that, uh, frankly, just some people wouldn't be interested. It gets too detailed. It gets, it's just, it's just a lot. And, and. Every question you answer in this area leads to another question. That's a, that's a problem. And so the appendixes deal with those peripheral things that come up as you're, you're, you're dealing with this. Um, it has been quite a journey to, to get to tonight. Um, I really wanted to share this a year ago. And uh, we had a really good talk with the, the elders and the staff. We were all together, and um, it was just such a, a strong disagreement on things. And, you know, my feeling is healthy families talk. Healthy families can express feelings, and that there's something wrong with a family where you're not allowed to speak how you feel about something or what your opinion is about something. And so I'm just like, I'm, I'm willing to delay it. But the idea of not talking about it because somebody might have a different opinion just seems so wrong. And uh, we have to, as a church body, we have to learn how to agree to disagree sometimes. Now, there are three things that the pastoral staff and elders are absolutely in full agreement about hell. Um, Number one, uh, every human being will face a day of judgment after death. The soul lives on after death to a time when it will face judgment. Secondly, after being judged, those who have rejected Christ will suffer punishment in the lake of fire. Absolute agreement. Number three, That punishment is an eternal punishment. Well, here's where the disagreement starts. What eternal punishment means is what I would call a non-essential. What is the nature of eternal punishment? The Fathers early, in one of the early councils said in essentials unity, 
in non-essentials liberty and in all things charity. The nature of eternal punishment, we have a disagreement, just a basic disagreement among the elders. Some believe that uh, the traditional position of the church, both Protestant and Catholic, that eternal punishment means ongoing conscious torment that lasts for all eternity. Um, My position on eternal punishment, which you'll hear all about tonight, um, is eternal punishment is an an irreversible punishment. It is a punishment that lasts forever. There is no um, going back on it. It's not like people are going to um, be able to, to come out of hell at any point. But that it is, so it's irreversible, but it, that the conscious torment, the punishment for sin, will eventually end in their annihilation. This, to give the impression that somehow this discussion just came up with us, and it, this has been going on since the early church, this, this very discussion. In 1989, the American Evangelical Council met in Chicago and talked about this exact issue and once again condemned universalism or the idea that everybody's going to get saved in the end, including the devil, um, as heresy, which we will look at that later on. And then they, the, but the position about, the, about Bible-believing people the disagree as to the nature of hell. Here was the, here was the comment by the head of the, the uh, committee, J.I. Packer. It would be wrong for differences of opinion on this matter, eventual annihilation, to lead to breaches of fellowship, though it would be a very happy, happy thing for the Christian world if the differences could be resolved. In 1995, the British Council of Evangelicals took up the same issue. They appointed a group of scholars to study hell and to make a number of statements. And here is the one they made about uh, annihilation. We recognize that the interpretation of hell in terms of conditional immortality, i.e. eventual annihilation, is a significant minority evangelical view. Furthermore, we believe that the traditionalist Conditionalist debate on hell should be regarded as a secondary rather than a primary issue for evangelical theology. Although hell is a profoundly serious matter, we view the holding of either one of these two views of it over against the other to be neither essential in respect of Christian doctrine nor finally definitive of what it means to be an evangelical Christian. I.e., you can believe either one of them and be considered a member in good standing in the evangelical community. And, and uh, so having laid those things out, this is a, a much larger debate than we're having here. Um, let's get into this. Point one, I've just titled point one as, Have we misrepresented the one we love? Have we misrepresented the one we love? You've got a really good friend from Europe. He's unique in that he is wealthy and powerful, yet also known for his gentleness. When he was in the States, you traveled with him, 
and found that he liked everyone he met, even those who hated him because of jealousy. He bluntly exposed hypocrisy whenever he saw it, but never for purposes of self-promotion. He just wanted to win people to the truth. When he went back to Europe, you stayed in touch with him. In fact, when you needed financial help, he'd send you money. That time when you needed a job, he used his contacts to open up a new opportunity you hadn't even considered. While he was in the States, he made other friends as well and seemed to have the same effect on them. His friends became your friends to the point that you all felt like a family. Recently, some of those friends have reported to you something hard to believe about your mutual friend. They maintain that he has hidden torture chambers in the mountains of Europe where he rounds up all his enemies to torture them. These very reliable people, some who know him better than you do, say that he has said this in his letters. They maintain that he rounds them up tells them their crimes, and then makes sure that they have no means to kill themselves so he can subject them to a lifetime of pain. The fact that he has enemies does not surprise you at all. Because anyone who is an enemy of truth or given to manipulate or oppress would find him offensive. That he would want to see them come to justice doesn't surprise you either. Because of his commitment to the truth. But would he ceaselessly torture his enemies? He often wrote in his letters to love your enemies. Once you conclude that someone had their facts wrong, once you investigate yourself for the sake of your friend's reputation, once you find out if he was misquoted or misinterpreted in his letters, once you call and ask him what the truth is, If it is true, wouldn't you want to know the extenuating circumstances that make these seemingly contradictory acts consistent with who you know your friend to be? Yet the church has embraced the doctrine of conscious eternal torment for centuries without hardly raising an objection. When someone questions the doctrine, they are quickly labeled a heretic or at least on the edge of heresy. I want to challenge you about what is being said about your best friend, Jesus. Does he inflict eternal torment on those who initially were the objects of his love? Or has he been misrepresented? I challenge you to re-examine the scriptures to join me as I raise the topic of hell so you can decide for yourself what the truth is. I want to start tonight by commending you for being here. It is a, a Sunday night, and we've got a full sanctuary, and we're, we're doing theology for two hours. That is amazing to me. So I, I want to thank you. Whether you end up agreeing with my position or not makes no difference at all. We're just going to look at the Bible. You come up with your own conclusion. But I want to commend you for taking time to find out what the Bible actually says about hell. All right. Point two, what is hell? Hell, Scripture says, is the place of punishment for sin where people are sent to at the time of the final judgment. The word Gehenna, which is the Greek word, translated hell, is a transliteration of the Hebrew Valley of Hinnon, located south of Jerusalem. This valley was where 185,000 corpses of Assyrian soldiers were burned in the days of Hezekiah, and became the place outside of Jerusalem that garbage was burned until consumed. 
This word was used by Jesus 12 times to describe the final judgment of the unredeemed. Here's some of the references that it is referred to. It is referred to, hell is referred to, Revelation 20:15 as the lake of fire. Sometimes, like Matthew 18, 8, as the eternal fire. It says that it was created by God for Satan and his angels, yet will be the place unredeemed mankind will be sent, body and soul, although no one is there yet. It is located somewhere other than this earth because Revelation indicates that the final judgment is after earth and sky have fled from the presence of God. It is a place of weeping or sadness and gnashing of teeth, which is anger. Where Mark 9:48 says, the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. So hell is... The final place. It is, it is a synonym to the lake of fire. Hell is not Hades. And it is not death. Hades and death are two other words. And they are, they are different than hell. They mean different things than hell. And I'm just going to separate them for you. Because the Bible does in, in Revelation 20, 11 through 15. And we might have this one up there. Matt, thank you for working with us. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. So this is where the dead are. Right now, the wicked dead are, they are in two places. They are in death. Their bodies are held by death. And their souls are in a place called Hades right now. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, so clearly these are different places because Hades and death are both destroyed in the lake of fire. The reason why this is important is all the way through the New Testament, when Jesus talks about hell, sometimes he uses the word Hades and sometimes he uses the word hell. And they are different words. And some translators just lump them together. And in the Greek, Two different words are used. Most translations keep them separate for us. Some just, they don't make a distinction. The distinction is very important. So let's talk first, and this is point three, about Hades. The Old Testament name for Hades is Sheol. Sheol is used 66 times and is translated as Hades in the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. <laughs> that sounds really scholarly. It's not that scholarly. Um, in a, two or 300 BC, they decided to translate the Old Testament into Greek. And so the Old Testament is in Hebrew originally, but the, the Greek translation of it is the same language as the New Testament is written in. So 
so you can see how words are used in the New Testament and the synonym for them in the Old Testament. So Hades and Sheol um, are synonyms. They're the, they're the same place. Sheol was the place all people went to, good or bad, in the Old Testament. The wicked were punished there, Deuteronomy 32, 22, while the righteous waited there for redemption, Hosea 13, 14. The sons of Korah went down alive into Sheol, number 16, 30. And Samuel was raised from Sheol, um, raised from Sheol, assuring Saul that he and his sons would join him there before the day was finished. That's 1 Samuel 28, 19. So we've got, we, we know for sure in the Old Testament, righteous and unrighteous, that was the place you went, Sheol. Most of our information about Hades, which is Sheol, comes from the New Testament. Vine's Expository Dictionary defines Hades as a probable der- derivation from Hado, H-A-D-O, signifying all receiving. In the story of Lazarus and the rich man, we get a glimpse into this place. In one region, we have those who are waiting for redemption in the bosom of Abraham. And in the other, we have a man suffering in a place of torment. A chasm is fixed there that does not allow any to go back and forth between the two regions. Jews also refer to the region where the souls of the righteous dead are held as paradise. So you've got Hades, all receiving. Everybody's there, the righteous and the unrighteous in the Old Testament. You have got one side of it as a place of torment. One side is a place where people are waiting for redemption called the bosom of Abraham or paradise. But the whole thing is called, referred to as Hades. It was to Hades that Jesus went after he died on the cross. Acts 2.27, quoting Psalms 16.10 says this, You will not abandon me to Hades, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Jesus went to Hades. Now, some have taught that Jesus suffered in hell. Jesus did not suffer in hell. Jesus did not suffer in Hades. Jesus suffered on the cross. That's where the penalty was taken for our sin. When Jesus went down to Hades, we know for a fact that he went to the paradise side. Do you remember what he said to the the thief on the cross? Today, today, I will be with you in paradise. So he went to Hades. But it was, the, it was the side of the, that the righteous were on. And here's what he says as to the location of Hades. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And some people have done the math on the three days and three nights and they're you know, they've got Jesus dying on Wednesday to get him in there, a full three days, three days. In Hebrew culture, Jewish culture, any part of a day is a 24-hour period. It is a day and a night. So for it to be three days and three nights for a Hebrew just means it has to be part of three days. Because once it's part of it, it's the whole, it's the whole day. He said, so Jesus said he would be in the heart, or in other words, the middle of the earth. This would be consistent with the sons of Korah being swallowed down to Hades and Samuel rising up from Hades. 
It is also consistent with what Paul said in Ephesians 4, 8, 9. Here's what he says. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. And he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? So Jesus, what he did is he went down to paradise. He stripped Satan of his authority. And then it says that he led a host of captives on high. This would be the, the righteous that were in paradise. Until Jesus died, no one could go to heaven. The gates of heaven were, were locked. And Jesus opened up Hades, the paradise side, emptied it out. He led the righteous on high in triumph. And, and today when the righteous die, they go to heaven. They don't go to Hades. Now, the wicked that die continue to go to Hades The wicked that have rejected Christ are in Hades right now awaiting a final judgment. All right. 2 Peter 2, 9 says this. The Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. Okay, so so they're being held there But for final judgment, but it says this, they are already under God's punishment. In other words, they're already paying right now for their sins. It is a place that Luke 16 says, it torments, the, the flames of Hades torment, but do not consume. Do not annihilate. Everybody makes it to the final judgment, the great white throne. Okay, so that's a little more about Hades. Now let's talk just a moment about death. Jesus, it says in Revelation 1.18, he says, I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. So Jesus, through his death and resurrection, attained The keys for mankind. The keys that Lucifer had got from Adam. The authority that that Lucifer had attained when when, Luke 4, 6. When when Adam and Eve fell after being given dominion. Satan was made the, through usurping, through deception. Became the God of this world. The prince of this earth. Jesus never questioned that. When he gave the temptation, if you bow down, I will give you all of the kingdoms of this world which have been delivered over to me. It's called a temptation. It's not, Jesus didn't say, what are you talking about? You don't have authority here. Nothing's been given to you. It's not what he said. He said, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only. Through the cross and the resurrection, Jesus won back. He stripped the enemy of his authority and he got these keys. Keys represent authority. He got the keys. He said, I am he who is dead. I'm now alive forevermore. And I hold keys. The keys of death and the keys of Hades. We've already seen him open Hades, haven't we? And he's, t- he's taken the righteous on high. What about death? The key to death. Verse 
His authority over death was proven by his resurrection. Jesus died on Passover as the Lamb of God, but he rose on first fruits as the promise that everyone who believes in him will eventually receive resurrected bodies. Here's what Paul writes. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead is evidence to every heart that believes that one day you will be raised from the dead, that your body will be raised up. Later in 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we must put on immortality. And this mortal must put on immortality. For those who have died, those who have physically perished will be raised. And the seed of that first body will be transformed into a new imperishable body. Like Christ's resurrected body. Those who are alive at that time, they're they're called mortals. Will never die and their bodies will immediately become imperishable or immortal bodies. This is what the scripture says. Do not worry if your parent or grandparent um, was not, their, their body wasn't buried, if they were cremated or something like that, don't worry about it, okay? It's, that's just the seed of a new body. He said that their bodies would be raised, that we would be raised up with imperishable bodies. But Jesus' authority over death is not just about the bodies of the righteous that are raised imperishable. His authority over death also extends to the wicked. In Revelation chapter 20, it says that Hades will give up its souls, and it says that death will give up its bodies. Body, no one will be judged at the final judgment without their body. They will, be, they will have their bodies back. That body will be raised as our bodies will be raised. And then the question becomes, is that body, is that new body that they get, is that an imperishable body? We know ours is. But is the, is the bodies of the wicked that are going to be thrown? Jesus said that, that the, the, don't fear man, but fear him who after the body is dead. Don't fear him who can kill the body, but fear him who after the body is dead can destroy both body and soul in hell. Okay, hell is the place where both body and soul go. Now here is the difficulty. This is one of many difficulties for those that believe in the traditional position of eternal conscious torment. You have to believe that the bodies of the unrighteous are also imperishable. Why why is this a problem? Because Jesus said that those that didn't have eternal life would perish. Paul said those that didn't have eternal life would perish, that the gospel was foolishness to those who were perishing. Peter said that those who don't have eternal life will eventually perish. But those who defend eternal conscious torment are usually not thinking about bodies. They are thinking of souls. The idea that all souls are eternal 
that everybody that's born is a, has an eternal soul has been widely accepted by the church. But is it, the, is it really the clear teaching? Is it really the teaching of Scripture? That is bringing us to point five. Human beings, eternal like God or mere mortals. I want to tell you just a little of my story. Um, I got saved. I'm not going to tell you the salvation story. Don't worry. But I got saved and I was discipled in a, a one-on-one mentorship. I was a, in, a, in a Baptist group that was very, very sincere about discipleship. And I'm very grateful to that. And here's what I was taught early on. That... We are made in the image of God. Part of being in the image of God is that we are eternal like God. Therefore, the gospel, everybody, everybody has eternal life. And it's just a matter of where you're going to spend eternity. You're either going to spend it in heaven or you're going to spend it in hell. And therefore, we, we need to get out there and we need to tell everybody because of this horrible truth that everybody has, is eternal and you do not want to end up being eternally alive in the wrong place. The problem, and of course I was a firm believer in this, and for 25 years, 20 years in ministry, not only did I firmly believe this, I believed that everybody needed to believe this. This was essential to the gospel. That's how I kind of believe everything. Anyway, um, I can be very, very strong. So, so those that are very strong against my position now, I have, not, I have nothing but grace and mercy. I know what it is to have that view. I know how firmly you can hold it and why you might think I'm compromising. But I want us to take us, we've got to look at this. You've got to take emotion out. You've got to take out what you want to be true or what we've always believed or what the church has always believed. You've got to go back to Scripture itself. Genesis 3, 22b. God says this. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. God made Adam and Eve in his image. He placed a tree in the middle of the garden called the tree of life. We know that Adam and Eve had a choice, had a free will, and could have eaten of the tree of life. Instead, they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And after they did that, God posted angels with swords at the Garden of Eden so they couldn't get back in. And the reason was, God said, otherwise they might eat of the tree of life in their fallen state and live forever. We cannot let that happen. So in my mind, what that means is that being in the image of God means that you have the potential for eternal life. You, it is in you to choose to fellowship with God, to partake of eternal life, but it does not necessarily demand 
that you become eternal. You have a choice. Is this first the teaching? Oh, we're going to look at the Old Testament in just a second here. All right. Uh, the idea that being in the image of God means that man is automatically eternal seems false to me. Even though this is what has been traditionally taught. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.16 that God alone possesses immortality. So why do we think mankind automatically possesses it from birth? Did the early church fathers get the idea of immortality of the soul from the Old Testament or from Greek philosophy, specifically from Plato? Does everyone already have eternal life and will either spend that life in heaven or hell? Or did Jesus come to bring eternal life and those without it will eventually perish? These are, these are some questions that are on the table. So here we get to point six. Let's look at the traditional view of the soul. How did the fathers get there? How did this become the traditional view that all souls are eternal? 429 to 347 BC, there was a man named Plato who was a philosopher. And he taught that the soul was eternal. He actually taught that the soul was uncreated, that the the soul was was preexistent to the body. And his influence is seen in what has become the church's traditional view of man's nature. Although the early fathers were careful not to say the soul was preexistent, as Plato did, they accepted most of his views to promote the idea that the soul outlives the body. Their theology about the soul was not based on the Old Testament, therefore, but on Greek philosophy. Tertullian, he was one of the strongest early apologists for the church, 155 to 222 AD. He wrote this. I may use, therefore, the opinion of Plato when he declares every soul is immortal. Many later fathers followed him in this thought and eventually it became established dogma. No one is more responsible for this than Augustine. Augustine lived from 354 A.D. to 430 A.D. Edward Fudge writes in The Fire That Consumes, Augustine the philosopher speaks from the viewpoint of Plato who took for granted the maxim that all souls are immortal. Augustine accepts Plato's axiom with the common Christian qualifications that souls had a beginning because God created them. I want to be very, very careful here. It is important to honor those who have gone before. It is important to honor those that taught and where doctrines came from. They, when, they've, when they have existed for a long time, it is very important we don't just blow them off. However, the lesson of the Protestant Reformation was soli, sola scriptura. You got to go back to the Bible itself. The lesson of the Bereans who were wiser than the Thessalonians because they went back to the Bible, to the scriptures, to see if it was really soul, uh, really, if it was really, what Paul was teaching was really scriptural. So here's my question. Do the teachers teach the immortality of the soul? Here's what Peter wrote. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living An enduring word of God. For all men are like grass. 
And all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Peter is quoting from Isaiah 40, verses 6 and 7. And this is how the Old Testament continually pictured man. Temporal, frail, like the beasts that perish. The the Old Testament all the way through. I'm just going to give you a few references just from the Psalms about the nature of the wicked and mankind. Here's Psalm 37.10. They will be no more, so they cannot be found. Here's 37.20. They will perish like the beauty of the fields and vanish like smoke. Here's 58.7. They will vanish like water that flows away. Psalm 68.2. As smoke is blown away by the wind, may you blow them away as wax melts before the fire. May the wicked perish before God. Psalm 73.27. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all those who are unfaithful to you. Now, when you're looking at what did the the Old Testament people believe, one of the key figures, the key historians, is a Jewish historian named Josephus. Josephus wrote in the late 90 ADs, but he wrote all about Jewish history. He was very learned. He's very well respected. He's kind of the man in in that whole realm. And here's what Josephus wrote. Uh, told us about the some Essenes, a group that existed at the time of Christ, that they had embraced Greek fables and built on the supposition that souls are immortal, the doctrine that bad men suffer immortal punishment after death. Josephus calls such beliefs an unavoidable bait for such as those as have once had a taste for Greek philosophy. In other words, this group of people, Josephus says, did not start with what the scriptures taught, but had been influenced by the Greeks, came to immortality of the soul, and it's an easy jump. Once you believe in an immortal soul, wicked people, if they're immortal, they have to go somewhere, and that's when they started teaching eternal conscious torment. In the last few years, there have been two books, uh, one called uh, Love Wins by Rob Bell that, that teaches universalism. We'll talk more about that later. And then there was another book written by Francis Chan to count, contradict that book, to, to give an apology for eternal conscious torment. And when Francis Chan is writing about what the Jews of Jesus' day believed about hell, he gives three points. First, that hell is a place of punishment after judgment. Second, that hell is described in imagery of fire and darkness where people lament. And third, that hell is a place of annihilation or never-ending punishment. Now, this is the guy that is, he's making the case for eternal conscious torment. And he acknowledges that at the time of Jesus, there were, there was two, there were two positions. One was annihilation. What he doesn't say in his book is that was by far the predominant opinion. It was one small group of Essenes, not all Essenes, one small group that believed in eternal conscious torment. The Apostle John reflected the majority position at the time when he wrote, here's what he said, 1 John 2, 17. 
The world and its desires pass away. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. Here's what John says. (laughs) The world and all of its desires, all of mortal man, all of uh, these flowers of the field, the, the grass of the field that withers, all mortality, all mortal people, all things in the world, all of the world's desires are eventually going to pass away. But the one who does the will of God will live forever. Is it possible that it's that simple? Is it possible that this thing has become very, very complicated? Is it possible that the gospel is simply offering eternal life to mortal people that will eventually die and pass away without hearing and responding to the gospel. For five centuries and four church councils, there was no official position on the nature of hell. But in the sixth century, in the second council of Constantinople, 553 AD, a condemnation was made against Origen, who taught the restoration of all things, uh, universalism. The relevant text comes from Amathematism 9. If anyone says or thinks that the punishment of demons and of impious men is only temporary and will one day have an end and that a restoration will take place of demons and of impious men, let him be anathema. How did this happen? Here's what happened. Origen, who wrote in the third century, he couldn't justify eternal conscious torment with the character of God. He, he read all of the, the, the heart of God about wanting all people to be saved and Christ dying for all and that he's reconciling the whole world to himself. And, and in God's heart, he just he couldn't reconcile in the character of God eternal conscious torment. And so... Because he had to, because everybody at that time, or most people at that time were believing that souls were eternal, you have to bring them all back. And so Origen started teaching, Origen was a great Christian man. He loved the Lord. He's a great apologist. He, I, think, I think he was martyred for the faith in, a, in an incredible act of courage. My daughter, can you affirm that, Christina? Yeah, he did. He, he was martyred. Origen was a great, a great guy. But he wanted to, in defending the character of God, he, he went too far. And of course, Augustine was the number one guy that, while Origen was defending the character, Augustine was defending the word of God and saying, you can't do that. That is not the New Testament. That is not the gospel. There is, there is an end, there is a punishment, and it is an eternal punishment. And so... Ever since the Second Council of Constantinople, universalism has been um, decreed as a heresy. The idea that Satan and everybody is going to get saved in the end, that love will win in the end. Um, That doesn't mean the people that hold that view are not Christians. I, I know very good people, very good Christian people that hold that opinion. But they're not going to teach it in this church because... Because of, because of it, it violates scripture. 
So I, so I love Rob Bell, but that he, he's, he's just off in, in that area, in my opinion. However, if you believe in an eternal soul, you have no other place to go. They've either got to end up eternally in heaven or they have to be eternally in hell. So let's look at the traditional doctrine of eternal torment. This is a view that I held for many, many years, so I'm extremely familiar with it. Where did this doctrine come from scripturally? Jesus warned of hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He warns people it is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. He clearly states after dividing the sheep and the goats, they, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. The writer of Hebrews calls eternal judgment one of the foundational truths of the faith. Paul warns that those who don't know God and who do not obey the gospel experience the punishment of everlasting destruction. Finally, and most conclusively, John says in Revelation 14, 11, that none who take the mark of the beast, that those who take the mark of the beast will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever There is no rest day or night. The most conclusive eternal conscious torment passage is right there. Also Revelation 20.10 who promises the same thing to the devil, the antichrist, and the false prophet. Traditionalists will argue that the word perish used in John 3.16 and in many other places about the final state of the unredeemed does not have to mean annihilation but can simply mean to be ruined for their original purpose. One scripture that they would cite is in Matthew 9, 17 with the wineskins. That the old wineskin is ruined, and that word ruined is the word apolemy, which is the word used for perish. But it still exists. It's just ruined as a wineskin for its original purpose, and so their point is perish does not have to mean annihilation. Yet the strongest argument for the traditional position of eternal torment is that the majority of the church throughout the ages, both Protestant and Catholic, has maintained this. So is, that, is this, or is it not, what the Scripture teaches? So point eight, Jesus in the final judgment. Because we don't judge God, but rather seek to tremble at his word, The verses used to support eternal torment need to be taken very seriously. We better not twist them to make them more tolerable for man, nor seek to change God or his judgments because of itching ears that want to tame God and make him into man's image. All of the above scriptures and reasoning were mine for many years, so I'm in great sympathy. I've already said that. The reason I've left this position is because of all the other scriptures about the final judgment that need to be included before we interpret the ones quoted above. We are not supposed to make our own interpretation of the Bible, but must let the scripture interpret scripture whenever possible. Instead of projecting what we think on a particular passage, i.e. reading what you already believe, 
We are supposed to take all passages referring to a topic together and then make an interpretation that fits them all. So what else did Jesus say about the state of souls at the final judgment that has caused me to change my mind? First, Jesus said that souls would be destroyed. Listen to uh, Matthew 7, 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. Jesus contrasts the two. There's a road to life, a narrow road, and there's a wide road that leads to destruction. He gives a similar warning in Matthew 10, 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus says that hell, the lake of fire, will destroy both body and soul. Paul warns the unredeemed that they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. Everlasting destruction means that the destruction will never be reversed, but will last for all eternity. Souls will be destroyed in the teaching of Jesus. Secondly, souls will be consumed by fire, according to the teaching of Jesus. Where did he say that? Several places. Matthew 13, 30. Jesus is giving a parable of the final judgment and the final state of the wheat and the tares. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. The picture here is weeds being gathered and they're going to be burned up. And wheat being gathered and stored in, in the barn. Now Jesus says in Matthew 13, 42, that before they burn up, they will experience weeping and gnashing of teeth. But nevertheless, he says they will burn up. The truth of this parable is stated by John the Baptist earlier in Matthew's gospel in this way. Listen to this. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. His, speaking of Jesus as judge, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering the wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Notice, the fire is unquenchable, but the chaff isn't. The chaff gets burned up, the fire keeps burning. The unquenchable fire is going to burn up the chaff. John 15, 6. Jesus gives this warning to those who choose not to remain in him. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. The the picture here is if you abide in me, you will continue. You will live forever. You are rooted in. If you do not continue in me, you're going to be broken off as a branch. So it's, it's no longer connected to life. It's going to be thrown in. This dry branch now is going to be thrown into the fire. What's going to happen to a branch in, in fire? It's not going to be annihilated just like that. It's going to burn for a while. But eventually, it will be annihilated. Now, some people 
have, that have just dialogued with my opinion and say, you know, you're, all of your pictures of burning up seem to be like out of parables or, or just pictures. And Well, let's get some more direct ones then. The writer of Hebrews says that those who don't remain in Christ have no sacrifice left for their sins, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Fine's Expository Dictionary gives the word for consume as estheo and defines it as to eat up. To say that the fire will continually torment people yet never consume them would be a direct contradiction of what this passage of Scripture teaches. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep giving you some examples on this. If you're struggling to, to hear this, I understand that. There has been such a presupposition that many of us have believed for such a long time that souls are eternal, that we can't even read these scriptures. And they can't mean what they seem to be meaning because souls are eternal. I want to encourage you to take the scripture at face value. Listen to this. Jude chapter 7. Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Sodom and Gomorrah were annihilated, not continually tormented. Listen to 2 Peter 2.6. He condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. This is the word of God. Could this be any clearer? This is what's going to happen to the ungodly. Sodom and Gomorrah were burned to ashes by eternal fire, and that's how God is going to treat the ungodly. The words of Je- we're back to the words of Jesus about souls. The unsaved will receive, the souls of the unsaved will receive a just punishment. Listen to Luke chapter 12, verses 46 through 48. Jesus is actually warning those he has put in charge of his people that they are actually at greater risk of judgment if they backslide. Here's what he says. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. Okay, so this would be the lake of fire. That servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. Okay, to whom have been given much, much is required, and there's going to be a more severe punishment. Then he says, but the one who does not know it and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. So we've got here, this is the final judgment, We have got some being beaten with many blows. We have some being beaten with few blows. But we have neither being beaten with eternal blows. Abraham said, will not the judge of the whole earth do what is right? Folks, I am not up here trying to lessen anybody's punishment. I'm not trying to go soft. I believe in the severity of God. But we're talking about his justice. His throne is established on justice. People have sinned, even if they sinned their whole life, even every waking breath they sinned. It is limited by time how bad their sins were. 
And the Bible says that they are going to receive a just punishment. Even those, the worst of the worst, that once knew him, once were preachers and backslid, Jesus says they're going to receive many blows. But even that group is not given eternal blows. What will happen to souls? Jesus said souls would perish. John 3.16, the golden text of the Bible, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The only, only God, it says in 1 Timothy 6.16, he alone possesses immortality. So only God has it. And God chooses to give immortality because of his love and his grace to those who believe in his son, Jesus Christ. And if you don't have immortality or eternal life, you will perish. Jesus said in Luke 13 that unless people repent, they will perish. Paul said that the cross was foolishness to those who are perishing. Peter says about blasphemers that they, listen to this, like beasts, they too will perish. Uh, that is Second Peter 2.12. Now, I, had, I already brought up that scripture about perish doesn't need to necessarily mean annihilate. So let's talk about that for a moment. That word perish is used 92 times in the New Testament. There are only two examples where it doesn't mean annihilate. One is the wineskin. And the other one, and you tell me if this means annihilate or not, okay? It's from John chapter 6, verse 27. And Jesus is criticizing those who come, and he's saying, work, do not work for the food that perishes, but work for the food that lasts eternally. So what the traditionalists have said, that word, it is the word for perish, but they translate it spoils. The food spoils. So it's still food. It's not annihilated. It, it spoils. But I don't think that's Jesus' point in the text. I think he's talking about the food that perishes, either through decay or by eating. This is food that doesn't last. Don't work for that food. Work for the food that lasts um, for all eternity. All right, the main, use, the, the, the main word that Jesus used for the ultimate fate of the unredeemed is death. Souls will, of the unredeemed, will die. Jesus said, he is the resurrection and the life. He said, he who believes in me will live even though he dies. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Now here's my question for you. Will those who have not believed in him also live forever in hell? Or will they eventually die? John writes, Blessed and holy are those, those who have, their, the part, have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. Now we know what the first resurrection is. The, the first resurrection is the resurrection of the righteous and those who have died are bodily raised imperishable and those who are still alive will be changed from mortal to immor, immortal in the twinkling of an eye. We talked about that. The second resurrection, which happens after the millennium, concerns the unredeemed. Death gives up its bodies. Hades gives up its souls. And the unredeemed will be judged out of the books that recorded their deeds in life. Then it says they will be cast into the lake of fire, which is called the second death. 
Here's my question. Will they live forever in the lake of fire or will they eventually die? Now, we all know what the first death was. The first death had to do with the body. The body dies. The body perishes. But the soul lives on. But now we've got body and soul together. And it says when they are cast into the lake of fire, it says that this is the second death. The first death was just the body. I believe the second death is the death of both the body and the soul that Jesus said would both be destroyed in hell. So, we're all free to believe whatever we want to, but, but here's, the cha- here's the challenge for you. To believe in eternal torment, you need to believe that destroy means something other than destroy. Perish means something other than perish. Consume means something other than consume. And the death means something other than death. I'm not, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just saying, if you go by the plain definitions of these words, you have to believe they don't mean that to continue to believe that. Now, we're almost, we're almost done with part one. Uh, guys, I promise the whole night will be done at eight. I, I know I'm over my 40 minutes. We, we, we won't do questions after this. We'll, we'll dismiss, have five minutes, and then we'll come back. To be fair, you have to reconcile all of the hell passages, all of the eternal torment passages. In any interpretation, it's not fair to bring out your, the, your proof text and then all the other ones you just kind of leave over there. So let's, let's talk about them. First, um, just because the lake of fire is an eternal fire doesn't mean that people will be burning in it forever. The fact that the fire is unquenchable or eternal just means that God will leave that fire burning for all eternity as a warning of what will happen to those who reject his love and grace. As John the Baptist said, the chaff will be burned up in unquenchable fire. When Jesus says to those on his left, go away to eternal punishment, in my mind, this does not mean eternal punishings, but only means punishment that will have eternal consequences. Basil Atkinson, a professional philologist, writes, when the adjective onios, meaning eternal, is used in Greek with nouns of action, it has reference to the result of that action, but not the process. Thus, the phrase eternal punishment is comparable to eternal redemption and eternal salvation, both scriptural phrases. The lost will not be passing through a process of punishment forever, but will be punished once and for all with eternal results. So here's his point. When we say eternal salvation, we do not mean that you're going to be saved again and again and again and again and again. No, you are saved Within e- and the effects of that salvation are eternal. It's going to, they're going to last forever. When we say eternal redemption, it doesn't mean you're going to be redeemed again and again. No, you're redeemed once, and the effect is eternal. And he says, it's the same thing with eternal punishment. You are punished once, given a sentence, and the effect of that punishment lasts forever. C.S. Lewis writes, But I noticed that our Lord, while stressing the terror of hell with unsparing severity, usually emphasizes the idea not of duration, but of finality. Consignment to the destroying fire is usually treated as the end of the story, not as the beginning of a new story. When, <clears throat> okay, I was going to skip that. Uh, when Jesus says their worm will not die and their fire will not, 
uh, be quenched. What does he mean? Let's look at the passage, because very important, Jesus is quoting this passage about the worm not dying and the fire not being quenched from Isaiah in the Old Testament. Let's go to, go to the passage. Isaiah 66. All mankind, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord, and they will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. Their worm will not die, nor will their fire be quenched, and, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. This is the righteous looking on the wicked, and it's interesting, not being tormented, but of their corm- corpses being beaten up, eaten up, and burned up in the final judgment. We've seen that the unquenchable fire keeps burning until it consumes. How about the worm? The effect of this worm is best interpreted by Isaiah himself in Isaiah 51.8. For the moth will eat them up like a garment. The worm will devour them like wool. But my righteousness will last forever. My salvation through all generations. The point is that the worm will keep eating until it completely devours. It is, this is just very interesting. I was working on this manuscript. And I got a call from a friend who, he's a publisher. And he said, You're, Tom, he said, we're a really good friend. He says, he says, you're not going to believe this. The 2011 NIV, the greatest Greek scholars in the world, have changed Mark 9.48. Here is the new Mark 9.48 in, in the NIV now. Where the worms that eat them do not die. And the fire is not quenched. The point is that the, 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 the worms eat. The, worm, the worms consume. They don't die. Perhaps the most difficult passage to counter in the ultimate annihilation view are the two in Revelation speaking of ongoing torment for the lost. One is specifically about Satan, the beast, and the Antichrist, Appendix 3. But the other one is in reference to all those who took the mark of the beast. It says clearly, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. How do we deal with this text? John Stott, a highly respected evangelical scholar, Questions whether the smoke of their torment rising forever and ever mandates that people are eternally in the fire. Here's what he says. The fire itself is termed eternal and unquenchable. But it would be very odd if what is thrown into it proves indestructible. Our expectation would be the opposite. It would be consumed forever, not tormented forever. Hence, it is the smoke, evidence that the fire has done its work, which rises forever and ever. The smoke of their torment will rise forever. And this is very important, especially in prophetic literature, is a quote from Isaiah 34 about Edom, where God is punishing the land of Edom. Here's what Isaiah prophesies. Her land will become blazing pitch. It will not be quenched night and day. Its smoke will rise forever. While the land of Edom was judged by God and that judgment was final, if you've noticed, there's not smoke still rising over in the Middle East. This is prophetic hyperbole. This is, the, the, while this judgment lasts, it is going to be day and night. But the end of that judgment was annihilation. Obadiah, who also prophesied about Edom, said this, the house of Edom will be stubble, and they, Israel, will set it on fire and consume it. There will be no survivors from the house of Edom. The Lord has spoken. Okay, let's take a break. We'll do, we'll do questions right when we get back, and then we'll, we'll, we'll finish up. So you got, you got five minutes to get a drink, go to the bathroom, stand up, sing a worship song, do whatever you want to do. We are, we are coming back together, and why don't we... Uh, 
We are at 7.15. Maybe instead of stopping and doing questions, because I really want to get done with the material before I do questions, why don't I just finish up? I'll try to leave as much time for questions. And then, of course, at 8, anybody can leave. I mean, you can leave whenever you want to. But I'll make sure that there is a place to leave at 8 o'clock. Okay? All right. So we are on uh, point 10 now. God's punishment for rejecting him. According to scripture, there are two great commands. First is to love God himself. And then the second one is like it, loving people that he has made. In the same way, there are two types of sins. They're very similar. One is directly against God and one is against the people that God has made also sins against God, but they're, they're indirect. <clears throat> the way we sin directly against God is by rejecting the love, forgiveness, and eternal life he has offered us in Christ. John 16, 9 says that this is the sin the Holy Spirit will convict the world of, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Those who reject God's offer of reconciliation in Christ will be killed, destroyed, annihilated, consumed, perished for their rejection of him. Jesus says about the judgment, But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Why will those who reject Christ be annihilated? Because they were created by God and redeemed by Christ, not so they would continue to go their own way, but so they would begin to love him back. If people choose not to, there is no purpose for their existence in the life to come. They made a choice and God won't have them live forever alive apart from him. He wants everyone in his home as one of his sons or daughters. But when a person chooses to leave and go their own way, he honors their free will. He won't force anyone, but he does go after them by sending trials to get their attention, impressions of the Holy Spirit to convict them, angels who protect them, and Christians who witness to them. Yet if people persist in rejecting his love, he eventually withdraws. They break his heart because he loved them and died for them. But if that's their final answer, he accepts it. His wrath will eventually come to everyone who rejects his love. The judgment for rejecting him is that he he will eventually annihilate that person and he or she will no longer exist. Traditionalists wonder if this is a punishment the lost would even fear. Yet in our land today, the worst possible sentence someone can receive is the death sentence. The punishment, think about this, for the death sentence is not the two minutes in the electric chair, or the time it takes for the drug to do its work. It is the removal from society, never to breathe again, or eat, or hope, or dream. People would rather have a life sentence in prison than to have their life ended in death. How much worse is eternal death? To be forever non-existent and serve only as an example of what happens to those who reject God. Daniel says that those who reject God will be held in shame and everlasting contempt. God's punishment for sins now against people. Unfortunately, people don't sin in a vacuum. Their choices affect other people, and they will be held accountable for them. Christ died in their place and took the punishment for their sins, but since they chose to reject that payment, they must bear the consequences of their sins themselves. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. 
I just can't fathom having every sin I ever committed in word, thought, or deed. They're all written down. Jesus nailed every one of them to the cross. He died and he took them away. But for those who reject Christ, that book will be opened. And those sins have to be accounted for by the person that committed them. As I studied all of the verses on hell, I discovered that whenever Jesus talks about punishment or blows in hell, it is in reference to sins against humanity. Sin against humanity is ultimately a sin against uh, the God who loved them, Psalm 51.4, and created them for himself. God commanded his children not to judge, but rather leave judgment to him. And he promised to repay every misdeed that was done against them. The payment for sins against people is not annihilation, but conscious torment in hell. Very important as believers that we all understand that our judgment for sin, for our sins, already happened. It happened on the cross 2,000 years ago. It's very important that you recognize that. You will stand before the judgment seat of Christ as a believer but not for your sins. It will be for your works since, since you became a Christian. And it's actually the time that God gives a reward. To whatever you did, word, thought, or deed for him, there is a reward for it. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, um, that it is the, man, the, the day that God gives every man praise. Every, all believers receive their praise um, from God. Whatever God can, can reward you for But this payment for sins, this conscious torment, is about sins against people. Matthew 5, 22, he references hatred in the heart and calling someone a fool as reasons to be thrown into hell. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever shall say to his brother, fool, will be guilty before the supreme court, shall be guilty enough to go into the hellfire. Matthew 18, 6 through 8, he warns about sins against children. And the judgment will be on those who influence them in the wrong way. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. So it can be children or new Christians. It is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned to the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. It is inevitable that they come, but woe to that man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than having two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. Matthew 24, 45 through 51. He warns ministers against the consequences of them using their position for themselves. And instead of giving the, the people that, are, that they're supposed to be managing their food at the proper time, they start beating them and abusing them and getting drunk. And he says, The master of that house will return on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour when he does not know, and shall cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. We already saw in Luke and be beaten with many blows. Matthew 25, 41 through 45, Jesus references the sins against the least of these, my brothers, that bring the punishment of fire. What is troubling about these sins is it's not only, they're, they're sins of omission. That whenever you didn't, Walked past the, the, when I was naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When, when I was uh, sick, you didn't visit me. And they will say, Lord, we never, we didn't know about that. We didn't, God, we, we, didn't, we didn't know you were sick. We didn't know you were in prison. We didn't know you were naked. We didn't know you were a stranger. And he says, whatever you, whatever you 
did to the least of my brothers or didn't do. You didn't do or did do to me. I took it personally. Wow. In Luke 16, 19 through 31, we see the rich man in Hades and we see Lazarus in paradise, that other side, waiting. And, and it's, it's said to the rich man that he's there because Lazarus was at his gate and he did nothing for him. He neglected him. In Luke 10, 25, a scribe says to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And he must have had a very narrow answer of who his neighbor might be. And Jesus told the story of the Samaritan and of the, the guy by the side of the road and, and he helps him and the, Jew, the priest and the, and the Pharisee walk past him and he says, which one was the neighbor? And he says, the Samaritan, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. I can't imagine how this parable affected this guy. He's like, are you kidding me? Every stranger on the street I'm responsible for, everybody that's going through something and, and I see it and I become aware of it, I'm supposed to do something for them. James says, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do, doesn't do it, sins. So sin is not just what you did wrong to people. It's what you didn't do right. (gasps) Wow. Uh, How great are our sins? If If that's what sin includes... What we, what we did wrong and also what we didn't do right is, is the measure of our sins in, in the sight of a holy God. That's terrifying. So how long will people suffer eternal conscious torment, or not eternal, conscious torment in hell? It's probably a formula based on how holy God is and what his perfect requirement was and how sinful people were. We know that it will be way worse for those who had lots of light and the absolute worst for those who actually knew Christ before backsliding. So then who escapes hell? The Father loves the Son. This is John 3. He loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. God has made one way back to himself, and that is through Jesus' sacrifice and resurrected life. Because of God's holiness and man's sinfulness, there could be no other way for people to become righteous in his sight. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Jesus, he who knew no sin became sin in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God's love reaches to all human beings and his desire is for everyone to be saved. Yet he will honor the will of those who reject him. And then I've got this whole thing about predestination, and I'm not going to go into that. It is God's will for all people to be saved. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for those of the whole world. Final things. Revelation 21 and 22, we see the earth after the great white throne judgment. Jesus is on the throne. The bride is dwelling in a city whose streets are made of gold, and God himself provides the light. Outside the city, and at that time, it can only mean the lake of fire, are sorcerers and immoral persons and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. The lost here are still alive while the saints are enjoying the new Jerusalem. So some have felt this is proof of eternal torment. Is it? 
During this time, the lost are still experiencing the severity of God's justice in the lake of fire, where they are dying, perishing, being consumed, and being destroyed. No one knows how long this will take, but only that Jesus will continue to rule until the full penalty is paid. After death itself has been destroyed, he will turn his throne back over to his father, who gave it to him, and then God will be all in all. The farthest reaching scripture in the New Testament is not Revelation 22. It's actually found in 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm going to read it to you. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that, those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. I believe at that time, God will be all in all because everything that wasn't God will be annihilated. So, here's the big question. This is the question the elders asked right away and a very godly man um, who's here tonight asked me in my office. He, he, he's got a different opinion, but he just looked at me and said, Tom, why? Why? And I knew exactly what he meant. Because here's what, here's what he meant. He, he doesn't think what I believe is the right thing. But his question was, even if it is true, why? Why would this make a difference? Why bring up something that could possibly divide the church? Or that would divide anybody? That anybody would... Why, why bring this up? Even if it was true, which I believe it is, why bring it up? <clears throat> I have thought about this long and hard. There is no one that loves unity more than me. Pastors do not like to bring trouble on themselves. I love it when people are getting along and loving each other and, and keeping the essential things essential. But, but on this thing, I, I, I'm just going to give you four ramifications if this is, is, if this is true. First, ramification one. It brings the character of Christ and the authority of the word of God together. Forgive me for just reading, but it's going to go a lot quicker if I just read. Well, <clears throat> while working on this talk, I received an email from a young pastor who I'd had no previous relationship with. He explained to me that he felt he could no longer believe in the authority of the New Testament and wanted to talk with me about his doubts. A few days later, he sat across from me in my office over a cup of coffee. Turned out at the center of his doubts was the doctrine of conscious eternal torment. He loved God, believed in the sinfulness of mankind and our need for grace, but felt that the New Testament couldn't be true because conscious eternal torment was so contrary to the character of God he believed in. To believe in the New Testament's absolute authority would be to betray his heart and mind, which told him this doctrine wasn't right. I appreciated his conviction that you can't change the New Testament to make it say what you want it to say. All through church history, some have wanted to defend the... And I've already gone into that. <clears throat> So I turned him uh, not to what I believe. I just turned him to what the Bible says. I just, we just went through Scripture. I sent him all of the stuff that I had. Okay. After going home and studying for himself the full topic, including the Scriptures I'd given him, he felt he could again embrace the New Testament in light of the scriptural support for ultimate annihilation. 
came to understand that the word of God doesn't contradict the character of God, but only affirms both the love and justice he does everything with. I believe this position solves the origin Augustine problem. Origin defending the character of God had to believe in the restoration of all things because of people are eternal. Augustine, reading the tenor of the New Testament, absolutely not. It's got to be eternal conscious torment because judgment is final, it's eternal, there is a hell, it is to be feared because he believed souls were eternal. I believe this position brings both together. It brings the character of God in justice and it brings the word of God. It honors the word of God. Second ramification would be that Christians would have less stress on them. I was so struck by Francis Chan's story of himself in a coffee shop while writing his book, Erasing Hell. He, Chan was looking around the coffee shop. He tells the story in the book, contemplating the fact that most of these poor people were going to spend an eternity under God's wrath in conscious torment. How could he possibly justify having a cup of coffee and working on a book? If he really believed what he was writing, wouldn't he be doing something to help them escape this horrible end? Really? Is this what the gospel is supposed to produce in us? Are we carrying good news that God, in his great love, is offering eternal life to even hardened sinners? Or are we carrying the bad news that unless poor sinners accept Christ, they will be eternally tormented in hell? I think we have made too much of man. Jesus warned, what shall it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? I don't think man has value apart from the value God places on him. We don't possess the inherent value of being eternal beings. So without responding to God, we eventually forfeit our souls. William Temple, former Archbishop of Canterbury, writes, Our dignity is that we are children of God, capable of communion with God, the object of the love of God, displayed to us on the cross, and destined for eternal fellowship with God. Our true value is not what we are worth in ourselves, but what we are worth to God, and that worth is bestowed upon us by the utterly gratuitous love of God. The gospel is about an amazing God of infinite worth offering finite beings who have sinned against him the chance at eternal life with him. As Paul writes to Timothy, the grace of God now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death, and listen to this, and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The gospel offers immortality. Without the gospel, we're mere mortals. Ramification number three. The third ramification is that it makes hell more believable to the unbeliever. Jesus warned about the reality of Hades, hell, and final judgment much more than he talked about heaven. Our accountability before God is real. A loving God really will send people to hell for their sins. There is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. The severity of God's judgment really will include conscious torment, darkness, fire, weeping, and the gnashing of teeth until full justice is accomplished. The problem is that our warnings often fall on deaf ears because the traditional belief of eternal conscious torment is so contradictory to what unbelievers have heard about who Jesus is that they easily assign it to the category of myth. Some feel that my position won't motivate people enough to be saved since they get to be annihilated instead of continually tormented. I feel this position makes hell much more real because it is consistent with both God's love and his justice. And ramification four, a final ramification is that from man's perspective, 
the human experiment becomes a great success instead of a tragedy. Jesus said, small is the gate and narrow is the way to life, and few are those who find it. Guys, what is few? Let's say few is three out of ten. Let, let's say three out of ten of all those that have been made by God are going to end up in heaven. That means seven don't. So if at the end of creation, at the end of God making people and doing this whole thing with the cross, if at the end of it, seven out of ten people, people that we know, people that, people that Jesus walked with, people that you and I know with, if seven of ten are eternally, consciously tormented forever, doesn't that make the whole thing? Now, I'm not talking about from God, because God can do anything he wants to, okay? So I'm not telling God what to do. But from a human perspective, doesn't that make all of this kind of a tragedy? I mean, wouldn't we be better off if nobody was even created than to have seven out of ten eternally, consciously tormented and only three out of ten make it? But if this is true, which I believe it is, it's a tremendous success. God owed nobody anything, created all these people, set his love on every single one of them, died for every single one of them, preached the gospel, let the the gospel tidings be known. And those that have said yes, he's giving eternal life to. He's granting immortality to that will be with him forever. And those that reject him, they will pass away. And God, in the end, is all in all. This would be a great story, but is it true? After examining all the scriptures, I believe it is. You, you're going to have to decide for yourself. Me and Derek both believe this. <laughs> all right, so, uh, okay, so we're going we're gonna to just, I'm going to do my little conclusion, and then we're going to open it up for questions. Um, first, if you are here tonight, and you, you're not sure that you, if you died, you would go to heaven. Here's your application for tonight. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. You are a sinner. If you die in your sins, um, you're going to have to pay those wages yourself. And it's more than just physical death. It is, it is this lake of fire that we talked about. It's, it's, it's being sent to hell. But the end of that verse is the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The good news is God loves you. Jesus died for you on the cross. And the only way you come into this salvation is by receiving a gift. So if we could have every head bowed for just a moment, every eye closed. It is so easy to receive this gift. You just tell God that you're sorry and that you're going to repent of your sin and you're going to take your trust out of yourself and how good you are and righteous you are and you're going to put your trust in Jesus Christ and you just... You just say yes. And if you're here tonight and you want to receive that gift, all I'm going to do is pray for you. I want to help you receive this. So if that's you, would you just raise your hand real high right now long enough for me to see it? See that hand and I see that hand and I see that hand and that hand, thank you. And that hand back there, thank you. And you guys can put your hand down. Anybody up back there? Yep, thank you. Anybody else by upraised hand? You want to, you want to receive the gift. You want to take God up on his offer of eternal life. All right. 
Could those five or six just put your hand on your heart right now? Just pray, pray something like this in the privacy of your heart, sincerely to the Lord. Lord, I thank you for loving me. I know that I am a sinner. I know I'm a sinner because of things I've done, and I know I'm a sinner because of things I haven't done that I should have done. But I believe you died for me on the cross. You took my punishment because of your love for me. And Lord, right now, I open up my heart. It says in the Bible that you're knocking on my heart. And that if I would open the door, you'd come in. Lord, I'm opening the door right now. I receive your gift of eternal life right now by faith. Come into my heart. I repent of my sins and ask you to be first in my life. And God, help me, as it says in your word, to abide, to continue in you and walk this relationship out all the way until you come back or till I die. God, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Isn't that exciting? All right, then if you're a Christian, if, if, you, if you are a Christian, here's my hope, that this has stirred you to look at the Bible, to read the Bible. Please don't go from here, oh, now I believe what Tom believes. That's not the point of this night. The point of this night is to get the notes, to go back in the scripture, to see if these things are really so. Weigh them out. Every one of you has a teacher right inside of you. The, the Holy Spirit teaches you and guides you and leads you. And, and remember this as whatever conclusion you come to. And it's funny because in the first three centuries, because this is where a lot of our staff and elders are, here's their opinion. They don't have one about it. Well, that, you know what? That's exactly the, the position of the first three centuries of the church. They just didn't talk about the nature of hell. There was no official stand. They were too busy preaching the gospel and the goodness of God. And they were just kind of agnostic as to exactly what hell is. All we know is this. We don't want to go there. So that's okay. If that ends up being your position. You know what? I've, I've looked at what the traditional. I, look at, I looked at all these verses. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. It's okay. Just go love God and preach the gospel. Amen. Praise God. <laughs> now, if... You do have a position, and if you're, if you're like me, you're going to end up having an opinion, and it'll probably be strong. <laughs> can, we, can we remember that this is, that, that we share a great agreement as to hell is real, that, that, that the punishment there is final, and that it, it, there is a time of conscious torment, and can we agree to disagree as to whether it is eternal conscious torment or whether it ends in annihilation, can we hold that open and still call one another brother and sister, even though we, we might not agree on everything? Because frankly, in December, I'm going to do one on the end times, and my oh my, you know, <laughs> we're, you're going to have a lot to deal with. There will be very different opinions probably than what you have, and we'll talk about it, and we'll Go back to the Bible. But I hope we're all richer because we looked at the end times. And I hope tonight we're all richer because we looked at hell. All right. Um, I want to open it up for questions or comments. When you say something, I am going to repeat it so that it's on the CD. This is, by the way, this is recorded. This will be on the website. Um, You can download any of this. Okay, let's start here, then there, and then there. Go ahead, bro.
Oh, wonderful. Okay. Soul and the, the soul and the spirit. Okay. Together, they are the heart of a man. That's why you can have a divided heart or you can have a whole heart. The spirit, Peter calls it the hidden man of the heart. Okay. So the soul is your mind, will, and emotions. Your spirit, they go together. Spirit and soul go together. And so if you die, your spirit and your soul, if you're a believer, is present with the Lord. They, they stay together. Okay. Spirit, soul are together. And if you reject Christ, spirit, soul, go together to Hades and, and waiting the final judgment. So spirit, soul, and body will be judged on that final day. So I didn't mean that for that to be confusing. Spirit and soul together make the heart of, of a person. Good. Jeff. Yeah. What about Satan and uh, demons? Um, I actually deal with it in one of the appendixes. Um, we, don't, we don't realize a lot of it. We don't think about it, but there, there was a huge heartbreak in God. We don't know the full story of how Lucifer and a third of the angels fell. It's a tremendous heartbreak in God's past. God foreknew that they would fall before they fell. God knows everything. Why did he create them? even though he knew they were going to fall. Were they alive? Did they fall so that they could test the redeemed? Has he allowed them to live this long? Certainly, they will pay a full price in the lake of fire. It was made for Satan and his demons. Will they eventually be annihilated? I believe so. I believe it'll be for, after a very, very long time, but it's in the appendix. I talk about it, but obviously, you can't be dogmatic about anything to do with Satan, demons, and I'm actually next Sunday talking about spiritual, waging spiritual war, and we dabble on it a little, but Jesus didn't tell us that much, so we probably shouldn't say anything too dogmatically, but good question. David. Tim, am I forgetting to repeat these questions? Okay. Correct. And there's so much of the gospel that you quoted tonight anyway that's talking about the sin. This sin, that sin, all this yep. sin. And, and while I strive to live a life that's more and more like Jesus, I do all that stuff still. And, and when you're saying at least in, in the uh, soul sense that I won't have to pay for that or Right, right. Okay, so, here, so here's the question. I'll rephrase it. Um, doesn't seem fair. <laughs> Jesus talked a lot about sins, all kinds of sins. And as David said, even when, we ha- when we're not doing like the big ones anymore, we're still like there's a lot of stuff we're still sinning in. We don't care enough. We, we don't do enough. We, we miss opportunities. We're tired. We're lazy. We're, I mean, there's a hundred things that go on. Are you telling me that I'm not going to give an account for their sins, okay? That is exactly what I'm telling you. I'm telling you that Jesus preached under the law. Jesus put sin up. He put up God's holiness, and he put the sinfulness of man up. He was the last preacher under the law. And if you were under his ministry, by the time he was done with his ministry, you were ready to get saved. 
you're just like, oh, whoa, if that's how it is, I need a Savior. And that is, that is the heart of God. God understands our sin nature. He understands that we're in a world of demons. He understands all the influences. And so to give us a victorious Christian life, he said, this is how we're going to do it. You're going to get a new start every time you ask. You get up every morning. You, you know that those sins have all been paid for. And I see even, even the heart to try to do right, even when you don't full, fully get it, it's like a, a child starting to walk. God sees even the effort, and he's thrilled and loves his children and delights in his children. And he's so happy that in the New Testament, the blood of Jesus stops the wrath of God so he can put his arms around his kids again and make them who he wants them to be. Praise God. That's good. Okay, here, then here, then here. Go ahead, bro. Okay, uh, predestination. Um, predestination, I've got a whole, I've got a massive appendix on predestination. The idea that God, uh, you know what, that, that some people, before they were made, God decided they were going to go to hell and these were going to go to heaven and... Um, what, what was predestined before the foundation of the world, before anybody was even made, God predestined that Jesus Christ would die on a cross. He was crucified before the foundation of the world, and what was predestined was who, whosoever believes in him would be saved. And what was predestined is whoever rejected him would be condemned. Though that, was, that was pre-planned. The idea that he is predestined this specific person to go to heaven and that specific person to go to hell. In his foreknowledge, it just because he's God, he can't help having foreknowledge. He actually knows how this thing is all going to work out. But his foreknowledge is not causative. Every, that's why there's a judgment. Everybody will give an account and it will be on them if they end up in hell. It will not be on God. Um, so that's a little short answer for predestination. Michelle. Okay, okay, now, okay, all right, now we're, now we're getting into a second thing. Don't Christians have to answer for their sins? And the answer, of course, is, well, yeah, we get disciplined by God down here. We, we experience his discipline. We, uh, if we willfully continue in sin, okay, if, if you willfully sin, okay, I know this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway, okay? When you repent of that, you have to repent of two things. You have to repent of the sin itself, but even more is the, the presuming on the grace of God. Because Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, is said, when we continue to willfully sin, we are trampling under our feet the blood of Jesus and counting it as an unholy thing. We are insulting the spirit of grace. We, we are, it's an insult to the spirit of grace to use grace as an excuse to sin. To say, hey, I'm, I'm covered by grace. I can do whatever I want to. That is an insult to the spirit of grace. And, it's, and it actually says in that passage that if you continue in that, okay, God brings discipline, and you're not listening to the discipline. No, you are defying the discipline of the Lord. And you are going to continue, continue. I'm going to willfully sin and say I'm a Christian. The Bible says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. 
but only a fearful expectation of judgment. So I believe people can backslide. Some, some people don't. Some people think once saved, always saved. Lose your salvation. Yeah, I don't think it's easy. I think it's very hard to lose your salvation. Uh, no demon can take it from you. No angel can take it from it. No circumstance. But if you yourself, just like you yourself came to Christ, if you yourself say, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. I want to go my own way. And not in a moment, but over time, willfully, then there is, then you have committed the same sin Lucifer did. That in the full knowledge of who God was and his salvation, you said, sorry, I don't want to. I'd rather do my own thing. I, w- I would, as C.S. Lewis says, some people would rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. And, and if, that's your, if that's your choice, that, that's your choice. 1026. Okay. Here and then Patsy. The, the Apostles' Creed says that we, uh, we believe in the resurrection of the living and of the, of the dead. And one will be resurrected to life and the other will be resurrected to damnation. And we absolutely believe that here. Now, the nature of that damnation, there is there's disagreement. Absolutely. This is these are great great points. Trust. Trust God. Uh, I, this should be on the CD. Um, Abraham said it. Will not the God of the whole earth do, do what is right? He trusted God, even though he didn't understand. And that, that whatever all of these passages mean, at the end of the day, we need to trust God. Trust God's character. Trust that a lot of things we can't understand down here. We can't fully understand and and. If it ends up being eternal conscious torment, there will be a good reason and it will be consistent with the character of God in a way that I can't fathom right now and, and can't put, I don't, I don't see it right now, but maybe it's true. I'm not here saying that the way I see it is the way to see it. And so at the end of the day, I'm going to trust God and, and we all have to. Didn't I, didn't I say somebody else was first? Patsy, Patsy and then, then, then D, Dee Dee, go ahead. 
gives us then um, the point. Then, as we do works, that's for the, I mean, then, then sins are obliterated, so then the works are yeah. the reward. Yeah, in, in, first, in first Corinthians... The, 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 sins are, the sins are washed away, and it says that he has cleansed our consciences from dead works, okay? And so we become his children, and, but he's operating a kingdom, and he's got work to do. He wants to reach other people, and so the Bible says that we are God's co-laborers with him. 1 Corinthians 3 says, so let everybody be careful how he builds. There's only one foundation that can be laid. That's Jesus Christ. That's salvation. But be careful how you build, he says. He says, because that day will expose what you built with. You can build with wood, hay, and stubble, which are all things that man can plant and harvest himself. Or you can build with gold, silver, and precious stones. Those are things man can't plant and harvest. And he says, that day, that the day we stand before Jesus Christ, our works will all be tested through this fire. And if we have something left after the fire has tested our works, that will be our reward. And he says, and if we don't, we will be a great, it will be a great loss. Even though our souls will still be saved. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. So. Go through the motions, keep your head up. You're not doing anything wrong, but you're not necessarily. Yeah. If you're, if you're doing the right thing for the wrong reason, you, you got your reward down here. There's not going to be a reward. That's a very sobering thing. That you have to be doing it for God. You're not going to be punished for it. You're just not going to get a reward for it. The, right, exactly. And I, and I do believe some will get to heaven and experience great shame at the beginning. Some believers. Because it's kind of like the parents that dad's leaving and he says, kids, you know, clean the garage. I'm going to be back in an hour. Clean the garage. And he goes and he gets back. And if the kid spent that whole hour cleaning the garage, guess what? He's out front waiting for dad to come back. He cannot wait until dad sees it. What I did, you can't, you're not going to play. But that kid that forgot, he got distracted. He started playing baseball and said, when he hears dad's car coming, there is a shame and a terror and a, oh dear. And, and John says, uh, let's live in a way that we are not ashamed at his coming as believers. Let's, let's be about the master's work when he comes back. Let's be, let's be faithful right up until the end. So, Didi, two questions. Right. Well, well, every life is very precious to God. He created it. He's got a purpose for it. He's got a plan for it. it its value is the value he has set on it with his, his love. Our value, in other words, comes from God. And he has placed great value on every single human life. There's not a human life out there that Jesus did. The, the value of something is what you're willing to pay for it. 
He died for every single life. That is its value. The idea that we are valuable apart from God, well, God says the nations together are a drop in the bucket. I mean, really? How, how could our value be anything? He's the uncreated God. Everything else he has made. So its value has to come from him. It has to be assigned from him. The idea that something is going to be valuable apart from him, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Question number two. I'm not saying these are complete. And by the way, guys, it is 8 o'clock. If you need to go, you're, feel free. In fact, in fact, Didi, maybe we should have the prayer. Of, could we stand? I'm just going to have a prayer. And I will stick around here and answer questions until the cows come home. <laughs> but you have been very patient. I said there would be a chance to, to leave at, at 8 o'clock. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for tonight. Thank you for all of these precious people that I believe the reason why they're here tonight is they tremble at your word. They don't want to make the word say something that it's not saying. They want to know what the word of God says and be faithful and represent you right and the word of God right. And so, Lord, we, the reason we're doing this on a Sunday night, Lord, you know, is because this isn't one of the essentials. This is, we've got some opinions and we're looking at the same scripture and coming to different conclusions. And so, God, I just pray that you would grant everybody great peace in this. And if they feel like, I just, I just don't know which way it is, Lord, help them to be okay with that. I don't have to know which way it is. As my our brother said, I can trust that God, the judge of the whole earth, will do what is right. And I don't have to understand that for to know that it's true. So God, help us. Help us to live for you. Help us to not insult the spirit of grace. But help us, Lord, wake up every morning grateful, joyful for forgiveness and seek, Lord, to, uh, as you've told us, uh, you're coming back. Help us be busy cleaning the garage and those that are very excited about your coming back so that you can see all that we have sought to do, not, not for you, but with you while we were down here. Lord, bless us um, as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, God bless you, and uh, I will still, we're going to let two minutes go past, and then we'll, everybody that wants to stay and talk more can stay and talk more, and I'll take as many questions as people want to ask. Somebody has told me that the cows come home at 5 p.m., so we're actually going to be here till tomorrow at 5 p.m., so that I can be faithful to that. All right. Uh, DD number two. DD to the second power. So, with regards to people that are not Christian, for example, my father in law, who has lived a very good life, he's supplied for his family.
Right, except that ex- unfortunately that option is, is not offered. The idea of annihilation without punishment for sins, it's not, it's not offered. Oh, the question was, uh, you know, I've got a, somebody suffering, annihilation would be a gift to them. You know, how could they possibly see that as something bad? That's something good. And I just want to be very clear tonight. God isn't offering annihilation. God is offering a how where you're punished for your sin, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, and you receive full justice for your sins. It's a terrifying, terrifying place. And um, God doesn't want anybody to go there, but that, that is the place. The end is annihilation, but it is not the upfront. David. Yep. Can I just say one thing about atheists? Yeah. Every atheist, and I don't care how staunch they are, is exactly one miracle away from being a believer. They are, they are one miracle. Do, that's why you should never give up on anybody. Because you think about Paul and how headstrong he was. And I mean, he is going 100 miles. And when God comes, and God holds all the strings. I don't believe in you. I defy you. I did it. Well, why are you so mad if you don't believe in You know, that was the thing with the communists. You know, that, so I've read testimonies. People that got saved in Russia. And the reason why they got saved was because God had to exist because they were so angry at him. And that if he didn't exist, why would they? They talk about him all the time, they said. He has to exist. <laughs> so, okay. Amen. 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 Jeff. What, what, what about suicide? Um, you need to be very, very careful when you talk about suicide. Very careful. It is a disaster to interpret 1 Corinthians 3.16, whoever destroys the body, the Lord will destroy, as this is because some have interpreted that being suicide. The context of 1 Corinthians 3 is about the body of Christ. It's about those who are sowing division in the body. It is a corporate passage. It is not about suicide. Okay. The Bible makes a clear distinction between rebellion and being spur of the moment spontaneous sin. This is in the Old Testament. That in the in the heat of a moment something wicked happens, the enemy uses that is different that even our court system when you plan a crime versus it just happened 
premeditated, you're going to get a way worse sentence. And suicide that is planned over time and my trials, I am choosing, in all the trials God has brought to my life, I'm choosing to not turn to him, but I am going to take my own life as an act of rebellion. That is going to lead a person to hell. Most suicides are not like that. Most suicides are somebody that is depressed, fearful. Demons are all around them, lying to them. They grab a gun in a spur of a moment and shoot themselves or do something like that. Um, Do we have to assign those people to hell? Uh, If they've been a believer and they've walked with God and they, in a low moment, did that, well, let me ask you this. Do you think Peter would have gone to hell when, if he had died after he had denied Jesus three times? Absolutely not. We're in a relationship with God. Sin as a believer, it does break fellowship with God, but it doesn't break relationship. If my kids aren't good today, there might be some strain on our conversation, but that doesn't mean they're no longer my kids. They're in. I, I love them. They're in the home. We'll work through those things. Um, so please don't take the burden of putting yourself in God's place when somebody has committed suicide and decree that they are in hell. Um, it's, 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 it's not like that. It's, it's much more complicated than that. And, and how could we possibly know what was going on in the last moments of their life? How could we possibly know their last prayer? Paul said, or, or Peter says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, just that scripture should, should tell us you can't consign anybody to hell. The person that was wicked and they died in a car accident, well, who knows what they did right before they died? Um, so, yeah, tender, very tender issue. Jim. Well, I think it's even beyond that. I think it's, uh, Jesus gave so many warnings about this. Like the 10 virgins that all start with oil that are going out to meet the bridegroom. At the idea that I got everything I needed when I was saved and I'm presuming that that will be enough. I'm not doing anything else for my salvation. Whatever I got at the beginning It so violates what this is. This is about a relationship. This is about, we need to freshen the oil. We need to trim our wicks daily. The the idea that it's the whole once saved, always saved, whole doctrine is based, to me, on such a presumption that when I was either, and everybody's got a different way of how they got in, infant baptism, or I came to the altar at Billy Graham, or, but whatever oil I got at the beginning, that is enough, and I refuse to do anything else for my salvation. And I'm just going to presume that that will be enough. Well, the Bible says it's going to be hard in the end times. It's going to get difficult. And, it's gonna, and you can't borrow from somebody else's relationship. They will go to their brother and say, give us some of that oil. It doesn't work that way. You've got you to go to the seller of the oil. And, and to me, 
we need to all be building intimacy. We need to be all building the oil of intimacy and trimming our wicks and, and seeking to grow and love him. And, and that is a safe place. That is a very safe place. Um, is a Christian that's presuming, are they safe? Um, I say that's very, very dangerous. I'm not going to make the judgment as to whether they're going to make it or not. I, God will probably take them home early just so they still make it. But my, oh my, I don't want to go that way. I, I want to I go, I want to work on myself, work it out, as you said, Jim. Very good. Lisa. It's Hey, and I still use hell and heaven. I, it, this is more powerful for me. When I get to the hell part and about the wages of sin is death and the bridge, I say, if you, know, if you die in your sins, you will perish in hell. And I, that's what I believe. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it, it, this, it just this makes the gospel so good. It makes it so simple. And Lisa, I, I completely agree with you. When I first really started believing this, I actually became very, very sad that most of the church doesn't believe this. They just believed what's been handed down and they haven't questioned it. And it just, I'm always astounded at much, how much free will God has given to people and to the church. He will let the church believe whatever the church wants to believe. And if we refuse to go back to the scripture and find out if it's... 95% of the Christianity believes, especially the Christian church, believes in the Bro, there is nothing in my heart that wants to lessen the severity that God has given for sinners. We are to behold the severity of God. That's what a lot of tonight has been. The thing of it is, 
what we all know. Yeah. We all know we have an immortal soul. Everybody knows. You could, throughout all the world, we all know in the, in the books of museums, they know they've got an immortal soul. In South America, they know they've got an immortal soul. We all know it. It's something God has put in, in our, uh, in our being. Right. We... we Right, right. Uh, right, and, and uh, we're, we're talking about, in Paul's argument in Romans 2, because you're, you're absolutely right, God's put a conscience in everyone. Everybody knows that they are more than flesh and blood, that we're not animals. Everybody knows that there is a sense of right and wrong, and there is something inside of us that is beyond our body and our physical needs and this accountability. Um, does that mean we are automatically immortal? Um, I'm not, I, I, I wouldn't say that. Alice. It's all in the appendixes, right. I, I, this is, I'm not the, the lone voice. This is, this has been since the early church. This argument has been a minority view. And uh, in the appendixes, you guys, did that thing ever go around with the email? Yeah. It's right there. Okay. Um, <laughs> no, I get no credit. Um, it, it, uh, but I, I'm completely with you. I don't want to lessen severity, uh, nor do I want to Make it something that it's not. I don't want to misrepresent God either. And so I think we need to be careful on both sides. So, anybody else? Yes. Yep, okay, that's one. What's the second one, bro? That's, bro, that, that it, those are two very, very good questions, okay? Let, let me answer them. The three out of ten, that came from nowhere. That was just, I didn't, I didn't know what the small is the gate, few are those that are going to find life. That was just, that came from me. Um, the second one is the idea, hey, I'm just going to have fun. I'm going to live my whole life. I'll come to Christ. You know, if this is what I think it is, I just come to Christ at the end. That is absolutely not how this works. No one can come unless the Father draws him. You, you, the idea that you understand you need Christ on your own, that is not true. You don't choose Christ. You have to be drawn or you don't even know there is. Depravity is way worse than we think it is. 
Because we're so used to grace, provenient grace, grace that goes before, where people can do good and bad and can choose. If God takes that away, the worst judgment in Romans 1 is God gives people over to themselves. He just removes provenient grace and gives them over, and the depravity that that is already there just becomes fully manifested. And so while God's drawing, you need to respond. (laughs) The idea that I can respond whenever I want to is absolutely not scriptural. Raleigh. That's another, that's another very good point. Yes. Okay, during the millennium, the millennium is on earth, and there's a whole other group of, of people. So that's not about people that had already died. Okay, that's, that's another thing. The idea of a chance after you die, what about those that haven't heard? What about, you know, those that got the wrong thing or whatever? That's in an appendix. I, I, I can't deal with it tonight. Um, Bob, this is going to be your, okay? This is, you got one more. Go ahead, bro. Right. It, the Bible says there's three heavens. The first heaven is, is the atmosphere. The second heaven we would call outer space. And the third heaven is where, where God dwells. Now, and, but, but the Bible also says that when we are in God's presence, that we can bring some of heaven's glory down to this earth. And that's why we're encouraged to pray. That's why we're encouraged to, to get into the presence of God and, and bring that down here. So, is that good? All right, buddy. Anybody else? Yeah, bro. Uh, for, for right now. That day is, that day is, oh, oh, can Satan accuse anybody before God? And as far as I know, right now, he still can. He accuses us before the throne day and night. But the day is coming, it's actually during the tribulation period, that there's a war in heaven. He loses his place forever in heaven. He's cast down to the earth and actually, well, we're, that's a whole nother thing. But his days are, are numbered then. And, uh. So all hell breaks loose on earth. Nancy. That's all. That's all. If you signed up for the notes or you can go online and just download it. Yep. That's between you and Sarah Carlin. You just, you just, if you, if you can't download it, it's a, it's a PDF. Good. Thank you. Anything else? We're almost, I feel like we're almost done. Bro. Well, 
um, I mean, obviously, evil can exist in the presence of God because God's everywhere. He's even in hell, it says. So he allows evil and is allowing it for a season for his purposes. Um, And so it it, it can't long-term continue in his presence, but it, it, it is allowed for now. So... By, oh, you, if you don't have email, I'll get you a hard copy, bro. No problem. Okay. All right, guys. Why don't we stand together, have one last prayer? Let's just make sure we're right with God. Marianne, would you close us in prayer? <laughs>